Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Michael Sano, and this is the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. I am honored to be here with Professor Rivka Karmi, um, the former president of Ben Green University, which I attended twice, and a medical doctor, and so many other things. Um, the, Professor Carmi, welcome. Thank you very much, Michael. It's my honor and pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, you, all right, we have to address something very quickly. Okay. Um, to all the people in America. Uh, so, when I was emailing you, I was calling you Dr. Carmi, and then I was told by someone else, ooh, don't do that. She's a professor. Now, in the United States, doctor is above professor, but from, I guess from what I understand, professor is a more esteemed title than doctor. Well, this is, you know, the European style. In America, a professor can be a teacher, right? Yes. Uh, the, the European style is that you are uh, a doctor, either a PhD or a medical doctor, and then when you are in the academia doing research, then you go, you know, up the ladder from uh, lecturer to senior lecturer to assistant professor, associate professor, and to full professor. Well, that's interesting because it's a lot more lax, a lot more relaxed in the United States. So I guess that's why people want to be, there aren't those steps. Anyone, not anyone, of course, but you can be, I could probably become a professor, but not in Israel. And that's so fascinating. Yeah. In Israel, it is totally uh, dependent on your research and your um, achievements in research. And it's a big deal. Now, you have quite a few achievements in research. I, I went through, I have been scouring articles. I have been, you have an amazing Wikipedia page, by the way. Well, thank you very much. Um, 12 genes, you have discovered 12 genes. Right. Uh, you know, nowadays, it is not a big deal. Nowadays, with all the technology in, in uh, the in genetic research, you can do, you know, a gene a day. Wow. I mean, I, I, may, I may be exaggerating a little bit, but it takes very, very uh, a few efforts. You know, now with the sequencing, uh, doing, you know, high throughput sequence, you can really find genes in a very, very uh, short uh, um, uh, period. At that time, it was the beginning of the Human Genome Project. Oh, wow. And the technology was still in its, you know, it was very, very basic. Actually, we were building those technologies, you know, to get to this point where it is so uh, both uh, inexpensive and uh, uh, very easy. Uh, so it was a big deal, uh, isolating or, or um, um, finding 12 uh, genes. Can you give me some example? Like, when you say, I found genes, okay, we have the human genome. And it has X number of millions of cells inside it. Or, or I, I don't even know. I'm sorry. I'm coming from a place of ignorance. Mm -hmm. But what does discovering a gene actually mean? Does that mean that you discovered, you knew it was there, but you didn't know what it did? Or does that mean something else? Yeah, it means both. But, uh, so, so at the time, you know, before the Human Genome Project, uh, we estimated 
<coughs> that we have about 50 to 60, even 70 million functioning genes in the DNA, in the nucleus of the cell. Uh, actually, nowadays, we know that we have much less. We have around 20, maybe even less genes, functioning genes, which mean uh, sequences of DNA that actually um, uh, that are the basics of production of, for example, uh, proteins to the body. So there are only about 20,000, and all the rest is what we called at the time junk DNA. I always, by the way, <laughs> say there is no way there is junk DNA, no way whatsoever. The day will come when we'll know what this kind of a GNA is actually there. Wow. Um, so about 80% uh, or uh, 80,000 genes or, or, uh, or like 90-some percent of the genome is non-coding for proteins okay. or other kind of um, um, uh, products. Um, so the idea was, obviously, we, what we saw was disease. We saw diseases... Uh, and as you probably know, uh, my research concentrated in the Bedouin community. Yes, I wanted to ask you about right. that. So, so this is a community that because of inbred, because they are marrying within the families, first cousins, about 60% are inbred oh, wow. uh, um, um, marriages. Uh, they have a very considerable number of genetic hereditary diseases. Okay. And when, when I set my research in the Negev, uh, I made a very conscious decision to study the, the Bedouin community. And then the whole idea when the UN Genome Project started was to take all those diseases that I knew already from my research before the Human Genome Project and then try to find genes, find the places where a gene was mutated and therefore didn't function and caused a disease. Oh, wow. Okay. So that is what causes, not, not in all cases, but genetically, it's a mutation of the gene itself. Right. And then that causes, and it gets passed on by uh, a family member onto, onto their offspring. Right. That's fascinating. Now, what... All right, let's let's go back a little bit because we know what your research is now. What? Where is your family from? Well, my uh, parents came from Europe before the war mm -hmm. in the early thirties. My mother came from Russia, and my father came from Germany. Oh wow! My mother came as an agricultural student. She came <laughs> to study agriculture. In, uh, in Halal. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that is where she studied her culture, whatever, her agriculture um, education. <laughs> and then she moved um, as an instructor herself to Ben Shemen. Uh, and and then she uh, she served as uh, as as a tutor as a teacher in mm -hmm. Shemen and uh, did a couple of works and then she went uh, on to uh, the Hebrew University to study uh, social work, Wh which so would make her one of the first very graduate. First. Wow! Actually, she graduated the first academic program of uh, social work. Wow! Right. That is absolutely amazing. And, uh, and, and she was placed in Binyamina mm -hmm. as a social worker. There, she met my, my father, 
was <coughs> was um, was managing the uh, new immigrants camp in Binyamina. There oh wow! There was a new immigrants camp in Binyamina, uh, and he was you know uh, he was the uh, manager or I don't know how you would call it at the time. A thankless job because I mean it's funny. So this is going to sound like it's not related, but I was doing a podcast and it was about food and it was about why turkey shawarma is, and trust me, I can make it relate. Um, It was why turkey was used in shawarma in Israel and it turned out because it was inexpensive, it was easy to access and there were shortages of supplies, food, all kinds of stuff. So... The stuff that your father did, yeah. I mean, that's backbreaking. Yeah, it is, especially since he came from Germany, as I told you, uh, and he was a very, very educated person. He came, you know, he, he stopped his university studies in order to come to Israel. Wow. And his family didn't like the idea at all. For a while, they didn't, they just didn't want to have anything with him. Uh, they started you know, writing these letters to each other only when they realized that the Nazis, you know, came on board and uh, and they thought that was a good idea that he left Germany, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but still they won't they won't le- they they won't leave. You know, he was really uh, uh, trying very hard to bring them, but they won't wouldn't move. Anyway, he was uh, uh, he was um, a, a, a archaeologist. You know, uh, n- not professionally, but uh, as a hobby, archaeologist and uh, uh, and uh, and also, you know, in music and, and culture, he was a very cultural person. But wow. he had to make a living, so <laughs> so he was a very, I would say, spiritual person. That a- at the end, really, um, uh, was building. That's okay. Don't worry. Was building um, uh, roads in Israel, and then ended up being uh, uh, managing uh, a, a, new, a, a new immigrants uh, camp. Well, that's interesting because I almost think that that's one of the things that, that's becoming lost, not just in Israel, but across world society. And that is the ability to have this, this um, visceral type of, you know, physical job but also have this other component to yourself, this artistic component to yourself. Like as soon as you were telling me that the first thing I was thinking about was, and and pardon me if this doesn't work, but I was thinking about Moshe Dayan and Moshe Dayan, father of the IDF. We think of him as this, ah, oh, this superhero, but Hebrew university, the head of archeology span there. It's when you said archeologist said, if I had, 12 archaeologists with two eyes as good as Moshe Dayan's one because he could just and it was the ability to have this split not not a negative split but almost a a place to reserve yourself and and to grow and feel better definitely well first you know that Dayan is not in a consensus at all because he uh, in a way abused his power and his uh, his status in order to uh, to get uh, artifacts, archaeological artifacts. Oh, yes. No, I know about so that. He is very controversial. Right, right. I'm not but saying that your father is <laughs> controversial. I apologize. Well, at that time, by the way, at that time, there was no, actually, no law in Israel mm-hmm. against that. For, for example, my, my father used to go after the rain, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, Caesarea. 
Oh wow! And pick and pick um, coins and other kind of stuff because you know, the rain would would just you know expose all those things that were very very shallow under the uh, under the sand. So after right after the rain, they would go there and pick very ancient um, uh, coins and other kind of uh, of artifacts and and took them and. You know, took the time to identify them and relate mm-hmm. them to the uh, specific period, etc. It was a whole kind of a very, very, um, uh, I would say, intellectual kind of a, mm-hmm. uh, of, um, um, of, of, of an activity or of a hobby. Would you uh, say... Th- oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I just meant to say, to say that you're very right. You know, many people at the time, especially the uh, the Germans, w- what what we at the time called yekes. Okay. I mean, they were very highly educated, ki- came from very uh, kind of cultural homes, and, and there were, you know, lots of doctors, mm-hmm. uh, lots of scholars, lawyers, etc. So they were very well educated, and obviously they had all these very wide kind of, uh, of interests and, uh, and, and hobbies. But they were also chalutzim, which is fascinating that they can have both of these going on. Right, you know, the, there is one picture that I like the most. You know, my father, he was, he, he was a tall man, but very thin and, you know, delicate. So him, you know, with huge hammer. <laughs> <laughs> you see, in nowhere, somewhere, I don't know where, you know, actually building a, a road. Wow, that's amazing. And in that environment, you were brought into an academic, or your parents decided that there was an academic need for you, and you moved on. Well, not really. I mean, it was my my own decision. Oh, all right, good. No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, at home we always cherished, uh, you know, studies and education and. Uh, uh, but uh, I lost my father when I was very er- very oh, young. I'm so I was sorry. like, yeah, I was 14 at the time, years and years ago. So I didn't really enjoy him as, uh, as as a role model, as mm-hmm. an academics role model. He was role model in any other kind of, uh, uh, of aspect, but not in. Uh, but I was always into studying and education. I loved spe- specifically, you know, the uh, what we call today STEAM. STEM. Yes. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, science and technology. So, uh, so the environment was there, but it was a very kind of self. Um, uh, what can I? Uh, nobody, nobody had to tell me. Well, that's study, or you have to have you know an academic uh, um, uh, career, and uh, you know my mother. Of course, I mean, she was a role model in that regard. She had a career and she was, uh, you know, a working woman. Uh, and I started, I, I didn't really, m- I didn't mean to get into medicine at all. Well, I, that's what I, I wanted to ask I, you about, please, yeah. So I was to be, I wanted to be a scientist, really. I wanted really? to be a scientist and I knew from very early on when I was 14 that I'm going to be a geneticist because I was, I was really, I mean, I was... What child <laughs> wakes up... <laughs> Dad, I want to be. Mom, I'm gonna be. That's amazing. <laughs> Please go on. So, so, so it was. It was one one kind of a uh, one point in time when I I we studied about the the nucleus of the cell and about you know the chromosomes and inheritance, uh, and and I was captured by that. 
Wow. So, so I knew that I was going to be. Uh, and so when I uh, when I um, finished my army duty, I went to study biology. Do you mind if I ask what did you do in the army? Oh, sure. Uh, I was um, I was dis- discharged discharged uh, as a captain. And oh, wow. all of my all of my um, uh, service in the army was around um, instructing uh, 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 soldiers, girls, soldiers, mm-hmm. so to be corporals, and then uh, in the um, uh, uh, officers' course. At, at the time, girls and boys did separate courses. Oh, so okay. Today they are doing it together. Uh, so uh, I rose to be, you know. To the to the point to the status of uh, of uh, the the uh, the officer or the commander officer of of, of a girls officer. So course. you've always had this drive. I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to be an officer. I'm going right. to be absolutely. That's for sure. I was always you know uh, trying to do my best, and, and you know my best, the best for my country. By the way, because you know we were. Uh, I wouldn't say brainwashed, mm-hmm. but as as children, uh, we were always told, think about what you can do for your country. Think what you can contribute to your community. Yeah. And um, so so this was the way I was I was raised, mm-hmm. both at home but also at school. Wow. So uh, obviously we all did, and only few of us really, you know, mm-hmm. went all the way to do that. But but the the general uh, uh, discourse at that time in Israel Excuse me. There you go. was that, you know, there is a meaning for our existence. We have to, to contribute to the country. Country is, uh, is still, still young and, and very prone to all those kind of uh, uh, risks. Um, but what I wanted to tell you that I went for the first year after that, I went to study biology, life sciences. And at the end of that year, I decided to move to medicine. Oh. And when I came to my mother and I told her that I'm going to change it to uh, into medicine, first of all, she was very surprised but yeah, because I never taught, uh, I never um, uh, spoke about it. But then he, she said, you know, I don't think medicine is a good profession for a woman. Wow. And I was like, wow, I mean, you are a career woman. What do you mean by that? And she said, you know, as a biology teacher, and you know, when you finish biology, mm-hmm. you probably be a teacher. I mean, she didn't even think about me being a scientist. Um, uh, you'll be a teacher, and you have, you know, those vacations, and you know, very good vacations for a woman to have a family and raise kids, etc., etc. So, and I said, oh, no way. This is. But what, what I came to tell you is that it wasn't like I was pushed. You know. Yeah. To all those achievements. This was all so, your drive. Absolutely. This was all you. Absolutely. So you then became a doctor. Um, and can you tell me about the path? Th- so you became a doctor, but then you wound up doing research. Right. Well, I wound up um, doing both. Oh, okay. Doing both. Um, so when I uh, finished my studies, my uh, my uh, medical studies in Jerusalem, I made I moved over to the Negev. Yeah, and a very, and a very, yeah, and a very uh, meaning and a very um, significant factor in deciding to do that mm-hmm. was ideolo- ideology, ideological. 
Wow. I, I really wanted to go uh, to a place where I can make an impact in medicine. All right? Wow, okay. And, and also the medical school at the time was, a, was very young, only two years, and I was very much attached to the uh, philosophy, ideology of that school, of, you know, being, uh, being community-oriented, seeing the patient in the center rather than the medical diagnosis. Oh, wow. By the way, that was the way I was educated in Jerusalem, in the Hebrew University Medical School. It was more about, you know, the, uh, the intellectual kind and, uh, and research aspect of medicine oh, rather okay. than the patient. So I, I really like the idea that the patient is the center, the patient, the family, the community, rather than the disease. So you treat a human being, not a diagnosis. Wow. Um, uh, you know, treating a diagnosis is a very challenging kind of thing intellectually. If you think about, uh, you have to find the di- exact diagnosis. It's very, very, uh, it's a huge challenge. But at the end of the day, it is a patient that you are treating. So uh, I was very uh, attracted to this kind of uh, medical school. So it was a decision to go to the Negev. So I did my um, residency in pediatrics. Oh. And then I moved to be a little bit more active. I mm-hmm. moved into ne- neonatology and, um, and um, uh, actually neonatology. So I was, a ped- I was a board certified pediatrician and then a board certified um, uh, neonatologist. Um, but at the end, you know, it was about genetics. So I did my fellowship in genetics in Harvard Medical School. Wow, holy cow, right. <laughs> good job. And it was very, uh, I, I wanted to do it there because, you know, I, I thought that I need this exposure to, uh, to the beacon of medicine, <laughs> of uh, medical education, and not, not to genetics at the time, by the way. But other than that, I wanted to be really, you know, in a very uh, kind of known and appreciated kind of uh, medical school. Um, and I came back and then... I did it all together. I did, you know, the clinical work together with genetic, the genetic research, which at the time, before the human genetic uh, genome, was only a matter of, you know, obser- observing mm-hmm. and identify a disease. Uh, by the way, you know, you probably did some, uh, some, uh, some reviewing of, of, of what you have there uh, in the Wikipedia, <coughs> I I was describing uh, a, a, a disease, a syndrome, mm-hmm. which was called after me. So the, there is a, the Carmi syndrome. How does that feel, so, though? So I mean, d- do you want to be known after, but you want to be known for the work? So I didn't want to be known. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to be associated with the disease. Yes, you know? I'm sorry. But, but this is the epitome. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely in, is. In medicine? You want to be, you want a disease on your name <laughs> or some kind of a disease phenomenon after you. Yes. Um, I didn't want it, never, you know, I didn't do anything, you know, to push it forward, mm-hmm. you know. At, at a certain point, somebody said, uh, you know, in a, in a convention, I wasn't there. Somebody but your work, your work spoke for all of it. So, so, so before the human genome, I just, um, I um, described the f- what we call the phenotype, what you see, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what is exactly the disease 
and how it is being um, uh, depicted in all kinds of, of um, examinations when you do. Either you see into the tissue itself or imaging, etc. And you describe it. And then after the human genome project, I decided to find the, the genetic basis to those diseases that I first described. Wow. So, so it is very, very, I mean, my research career in genetics was very interesting. So I'll, I'll give you two examples, mm -hmm. all right? Please. So the one example is the disease that was called after me, Karami syndrome. And it took us almost 20 years to get to the gene wow. that is causing uh, 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 this disease. Uh, it, it took some time because, you know, the technology wasn't there. So yeah. we had to follow the technology. And then at the end, about 20 years later, we found a gene. And obviously, we published all of it. And then was, there was another disease that I called TAS, TAS. Okay. The thoracic, thoracic abdominal syndrome. But let's be very simple. And uh, So the TAS um, was a very kind of straightforward, I described it. I said it is on the X chromosome. And, you know, I, I brought all the evidence mm -hmm. to show that it was on the X chromosome. So I was sure that within a year or two, I'm going to find the gene because if they, I didn't have to, f to look at the, all the chromosomes in the cell. You knew where it was. I knew exactly the chromosome. I, so I, I said, that would be very easy. <laughs> so 30 years... <laughs> Elapsed from there, and I, we still don't know. Wow. We know where is the, the gene. We know the place, but you, we couldn't find, couldn't put a finger on the gene itself. So it, it shows of first how wonderful was the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, realize or describe a disease that nobody knew before. Wow. Do all the work to find the gene, but it also shows you how complicated it is. It's, it can can seem very simple. Uh, at the end, it is very complex because the genome is very complex. And we know nowadays that there is nothing simple like one gene, one disease. Wow. What we thought when I, when I studied genetics, it was one gene, one disease. Oh, this is not the thing anymore. And, and it is, you know, the whole regulatory procedure is so mm -hmm. complex. Uh, so I have two diseases that I described for the first time in the world. One... We have the gene, and the other one is still there. And you know, I may, I may be you'll get pass it. away from the world without no. knowing the gene. You'll <laughs> get it. You promise me. I promise. <laughs> um, so you've gone from all of this research, which is it just, I mean, you could have stopped there. You had an amazing career as a researcher. You were a doctor, uh, a medical doctor, but you didn't stop there. You did not stop there. Yeah. And on top of that, you had women's programs that you initiated within the Bedouin community um, that, no, feel free if you want to open it. That's fine. Don't, they don't make it. noise. That's fine. Um, Neviot. Oh, yes. I'll do it. No problem. Sure. So you had women's programs um, among the Bedouins. Did those happen during all of this time or did they happen later? In fact, it, it happened in parallel to everything. Because, you know, my where, research... Where did you find the time? Well, now, <laughs> in hindsight, I don't know. I don't know, you know. I did, in parallel, like, at least three 
kind of careers. I had mm-hmm. the clinical career. I had the, uh, the research career, the scientific career, and I had an administrative career because I was in the medical administration for years. You know, so three kind of careers in parallel. And, you know, and some family kind of, of, of life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and people say to me, oh, I mean, did you pay? Did you have a toll? I mean, I mean, did it take anything? <laughs> and I said, you know, you always have to f- first set up priorities and then be ready to pay some tolls, right? Anyway, so my research was in the Bedouin community and I mm-hmm. spent hours and days in the community. Wow. You, that's, the, that's amazing because it is such an insular community. It's such a community that, that trust is meted out only to a few. Wow. You're, you're very right. So first of all, I had, um, I had a partner and a Bedouin pediatrician mm-hmm. with whom I was doing all that research. And he was the one, o- obviously, that opens the door mm-hmm. and introduced to me, you know, the culture, uh, the various uh, sensitivities mm-hmm. in the community. It was very, very... Uh, so he was wow. the one that opened the door. But then later on, because we were spending a lot of time with the families, so obviously some of it was very focused on the research. But some of it was also, you know, social. Yeah. We were socializing with them, and it was very interesting. And then I came across this notion, very deep notion, that the problem in the bedroom community was education, and especially education of women. You know, because although the women are very low, <coughs> excuse me, on the social ladder, you know, women are, are after children. I mean, they are the lowest wow. in the social ladder. I didn't know that. Yes. Although for that, they were the movers, they are the movers and the shakers. (laughs) They are not in front, I mean, they are the backstage, but they make all the decisions, you know, for the kids to go to the doctor, for the kid to be immunized. You know, all the really very important decisions is made by women. And And I thought, you know, education is crucial, crucial mm-hmm. to women and crucial to society in general. So very early on, we actually um, uh, founded the first non-profit uh, organization to promote education among Bedouin women. I, I did it together with uh, an Arab uh, uh, teacher, mm-hmm. um, Fatma Kassim. Do- she's a doctor now, doctor and PhD, not a medical doctor. Um, she is an Arab from the north, a teacher. And together we found this uh, non-for-profit organization. Um, By now, there are like hundreds of women that already went through this uh, kind of training that we designed for them. Um, Many of them are already professionals because we go back 25 years. And it is still there. And the ones that that are operating now are Bedouins. So... So they've yeah. taken over the mantle and and right. adopted their own health. Exactly. So so there are now more. I'm very glad to say that there are more non-profit organizations now to increase or to promote education in general and also women. Uh, by the way, there are more women in the university now, Bedouin women mm-hmm. than men. Oh wow! And, and they are obviously much more successful. Well, it's interesting. 
your trajectory because you wound up coming to the Negev and you took it upon yourself to care for and understand the importance of the Bedouin community in this area. And that's something in some of the biographies that I've read, uh, a Ben-Gurion, that, that was something that he may not have been okay, but he understood that this land was traveled across for millennia by the Bedouin. And uh, th- there were, um, not concessions, but there were things afforded to the Bedouins, allowances for use of um, use of land for traversing and every so we have something that goes from all the way back to then to you and that's cool that's so neat i'm so impressed by that yeah and and you know also uh we have to admit to it that uh, the the bedouin are still underprivileged i mean the the, uh uh the government of israel by the way all governments Mm -hmm. all governments from 48 uh did not actually provide in a very uh, uh, generous and obvious, and, and I think also very um, uh, uh, systematic way to the Bedouin community. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they are they are still a community in uh, transition. I mean, for years they were roaming about. This this was about the Bedouins. Bedouins didn't have any loyalty to but to the country that they were there, and and they had all of a sudden to change everything. They had to go into, you know, uh, organized cities, and uh, um, only half of them are now in organized cities. But, but for them, it was like going to a different planet. Oh, I imagine. it wasn't done in the right way. It was totally not done in the right Now, you know, the government is putting a lot of money, etc., etc., but, but still. So, so, you know, I also identified with the barriers and the issues there that are, that are absolutely endless you know mm. of uh, of of uh, um i wouldn't say indigenate but but you know i i'll use this word uh that needs a very special kind of uh, uh need to be addressed in a proper uh, way and they weren't so i became some kind of an advocate as well That's not tremendous. only not only the education but uh, other things as well. The culture, it, social, all right, of it. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so, so it is not about the, not that I see that you know all the lands the, or they own the lands, and I, I think that you know we have to be very realistic, and uh, you know we live in the twenty first century, and we have to make all concessions poss- possibly for them to have you know the western westernized kind of life. Mm-hmm somehow adopted and adjusted to their own but on the other other hand they they were to they need to adjust as well so you know going this fine line you know between you know the needs of the country and the needs of this community is a challenge well the bedouin tribes they've been around for over a thousand years i mean and some say even farther farther back than that um so a notion of them traversing the desert uh is something that goes way way back right and if yeah if but you know the need of, of the country was for example for land for uh for military drills mm-hmm. 
Oh, Israel, yeah. Israel is a very small country. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, part of the Negev had to be used for those kind of drills. So it was uh, a need to confiscate some of the lands, mm-hmm. you know, in order to, to, uh, to be able to provide the IDF with the means <laughs> to, um, uh, to defend this country. So obviously, Bedouins had to move from one place to the other. So this is what I meant, yeah, you know, the no. fine line bec- between yeah. the needs of the country, uh, the security of the country, etc., and you know, providing a community with the means to to make a living. And rather than use an understanding voice, it was more, no, you go that way now, but no, you go, and yeah, no, I totally understand that. It's it's in no way, shape, or form an ideal situation. But as you say, people are advocating now on their behalf and making inroads in order to make things better for them? Yes, definitely, definitely, in health, in in education, everything. But this is like, their needs are endless. Yeah. Uh, You know, the the birth rate is very high. Mm -hmm. You know, the average uh, non-educated family, I mean... We showed it very clearly that two academic parents, I mean, the couple are, are educated, Yes. number of children goes down. But the average uh, is about six, over six. That's a lot of kids. And also there is a phenomenon that uh, we are trying to deal with, and it is very, very uh, challenging, um, of uh, polygamy. Of of you know marrying, uh, yeah, mo- marrying more than one wife. It means that you know, average such an average family can have up to twenty kids. Wow, uh, which a ve- which is a very high economical burden to the family, and um, so so there there are some cultural or traditional kind of uh, um, uh, way of life in in the Bedouin community. Uh, that are challenging in terms of, you know, how in a very humane mm-hmm. and uh, empathic way to solve. And you're a part of that. That's that's awesome. Or you've been a part of that. Are you still a part of that? No. No. I moved after 40 years, 43 years, I moved from the Negev to the center of Israel. Okay. But before you moved, you were... My president of my university. You were the president of Ben Gurion University. Right. Um, you were the first woman president of a major university in Israel. Indeed. Um, how did that happen? One, why didn't it happen sooner? Um, and congratulations. And how did you wind up becoming elected, mm-hmm. so to speak? So we have to go back a little bit. Okay. Because I first were the first medical dean in Israel. And uh, and it took almost 17 years for the next woman medical dean, now, wow. now in Jerusalem, in Hebrew University, uh, to become one. So uh, Israel, on one hand, has been always uh, depicted as very open, uh, very, uh, I mean, with quality mm-hmm. and, and uh, equal opportunities to women. And they always give the example of Golda Meir, who was the first prime president 
in the world. Mm-hmm. But since Golda, things changed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even Golda was a very specific kind of a case in a specific situation. If not for that, I'm not sure she would be a prime a minister. Anyway, um, I, I knew very early on that I wanted this job of, of a dean of a oh medical really? school. Yeah, I, I liked medical education a lot. And, uh, you know, I, th- I, I, I thought I could do some, you know, make, make a positive impact on medical education, you know, the way I was uh, uh, envisioning medical education. Um, so I was at uh, the Dean of Medical f- School for five years. And, uh, and then I went for a sabbatical uh, to think about um, what people were pushing me <laughs> to go for, uh, for the presidency of the university. Wow. And I tell you, as much as I wanted to become the dean, and it wasn't easy because I had to campaign, I had to, it, it is an elect, kind of elected yeah. position in Israel. Wow. Um, so I, I, I had to be elected by the faculty. So I had, to, I had to do a lot of campaigning, you know, and being a first woman, it wasn't very easy, you know. No, I can imagine. So, um, uh, but as, as, but I, I wanted it. I really wanted it, and I set up my mind to get it, and that's it. But... I didn't really want to become a president. Oh, wow. No, because, you know, I, um, I perceived the deanship as, uh, as a period, a very um, uh, defined period in my life. Mm-hmm. I want to be there and then go back. Go back to the mid- clinical work, go back to the research. And okay. I, had, I, had very, I had two big research projects with a partner in the U.S. with a lot of money. So I, I just couldn't, w- I couldn't wait to finish, uh, you know, this job and go back. So I didn't want to go. <laughs> I didn't go more than then. Um, so it happened that my predecessor decided to go into politics. So he called me. I was in, in New York. And he said, okay, Rivka, you have to take it on. And I had some very, very restless nights. Oh. Whether to do it. I didn't want it, but on the other way, I had, you know, I, I, I felt some, some uh, kind of a responsibility that I, I just couldn't uh, ignore. And I always tell the story of the three questions oh. <laughs> <laughs> that I asked myself. I said, uh, do you care who will be the next president of the university? Because, you know, many faculties don't really care. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have their own research, whatever, and, you know, I said, whoever is there, it's not none of our business. I said, do you, do you care who? And I said, absolutely, because I always perceived Ben-Gurion University as not just, you know, a, 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 a higher education kind of an institute, teaching and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, and researching. I always perceived the university as, uh, uh, as a very, uh, very, important and significant engine of growth of the negative yes very much so you know i was i I always said you know take the university put it 50 kilometers northbound you know it would be another university you know in the in the in the in the the good case scenario Mm -hmm. it would just be a small college but it will be but nothing special and nothing and the negative wouldn't be what it is. Beersheba would be another development town, maybe a big development town, but not a city the way it is, and et cetera, et cetera. 
So do you care who will be the, the person? Yes. Do you want this person would have this kind of a vision about the university? And you know, I think you cannot bring from outwards somebody foreign, mm-hmm. foreigner, you know, that will just feel it very um, viscerally, Vis- ter- viscerally, you know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> you got uh, it perfect. The, uh, about the university. Although my predecessor, by the way, he came from the World Bank. Oh, wow. But like that, he wasn't even a, a faculty. And, and it, but he embed and he uh, endorsed uh, the vision. Wow. So, uh, but it, he was really one in a kind. I mean, yeah. anyway, I said, and then the third question was, look around. Do you see anybody in the university? You know a lot of people. Yeah. I was a dean and, you know, I was interacting with, with a lot of faculty. Do you see somebody that really, you know, is up for the job? And I said, no. Wow. And then, then the then I decided, you know, that it is, I have to step up to the plate and do it. If I really want, you know, the university to really uh, continue its role in developing the Negev. And for me, developing the Negev was developing the Israel. Because, you know, the wow. Negev is two-thirds of, of the landmass, less than 10% of the population. And the idea was to really, you know, make the graduates stay in Mersheva. And contribute to, to, to the development of Beersheva and, you know, the, the whole Negev. So well, this is how I made the decision. And at that point, I said, that's it. I put my previous life behind my back, my clinical work, my medical work, my research, everything, and just going on with a new career. But what you did, I, as a student at Ben-Gurion University, twice, I went to Ulpan one summer, mm-hmm. and then I went back the next summer, and then went made lifelong friends with a gentleman, Moti Biton, who was one of your employees, mm-hmm. um, the head of Milnot uh, Kimmel, the dorms, has become a part of my family. So I've been there, I've been in Beersheva every year. Wow. And I have physically, with my own two eyes, seen it grow in that short span of time. To put that into context with, I have another friend, um, Malka Reisner, who works for the city of Beersheba. Yes. You know her. Uh-huh. I know Malka. And to hear her speak of when her and her sister first arrived and how the city has grown since you helmed that amazing university, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Well, thank you. No. Um, <laughs> thank you. It's, uh, I'm, I'm very proud. I'm very proud, first of all, of the university. And I'm proud about, you know, the achievements. It wasn't, it wasn't at all easy. It was really very difficult. And take into account that we had three operations in those years yeah. in the south yeah at least two of them were absolutely wars I mean, yeah. you know with mm-hmm. with uh, with troops getting you know into uh, uh, gaza etc so taking into account you know the uh, the environment uh, uh, that i was functioning there i, th- I think uh, the achievements are really tremendous 
but you have to we have to understand it's not a one-man job it is not a one-man no. job you know it's it's a wonderful team of people that are really devoted and dedicated and they come to work as as, as a mission mm-hmm. it's not just a place to, wor- to to come to work but you know a, 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 a vision an idea that have they have to fulfill I, I was very fortunate. And, and now in hindsight, I was very privileged, I'll tell you, because, you know, definitely I had a lot of very interesting periods in my life. Mm-hmm. But obviously those last 13 years were the epitome of, of, of you know, doing something very, very meaningful and challenging and, uh, and enjoying as well. That's beyond, well, I have been privileged and honored. Thank you so much, Professor Carmi. If there is anything else you would like to tell our viewers and listeners, any projects um, or anything that's coming up, um, please. Well, you know, we had a lot of uh, projects in, in, a, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the university throughout the years, but... I have to talk about one that's to me is uh, is actually changing reality, and this is the high tech park that we build together with the city of Beersheba and the government, obviously, mm-hmm. that gave all kind of incentives to the multinational uh, companies that came into uh, the park. You know, years and years we were thinking about high tech park uh, in Beersheba. Because, you know, everybody's talking about what high-tech parks are doing to uh, cities. and, and uh, Nobody wanted to come to Beersheba. Nobody. I mean, people in Israel, they stayed in Herzliya, <laughs> Tel Aviv. You know, in, 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 in the good, good cases, they went to Haifa as well. Nobody wanted to come to Beersheba. I said, what are we going to do? This is a long story. I'm not going to st- tell okay. it. I'm not going to tell it right now. I will give you uh, all the time but, uh, you need, please. <laughs> but what I, I want to say that we managed together, mm-hmm. working as a team, to build a park which became actually uh, a worldwide known center for cyber technologies. So the 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 cyber capital of Israel is in Be'er Sheva. Now. At the time, we didn't even know what cyber was. You know, about 12 years ago, mm-hmm. if you would type cyber, you would get <laughs> a red line underneath <laughs> saying there is not such an, uh, a, a word in the dictionary. Now, everybody is talking cyber, and rightfully so, because, you know, everything is connected. Everything is on the internet. Everything is in, <laughs> in the cloud. Everything. Water, electricity, banks, hospitals, uh, uni- universities, name it. And cyber protection is needed everywhere. And we managed to create a very significant uh, kind of an entity in that park. So the, there is the National um, Center for um, Research of um, Cyber Technologies, so oh, wow. and which comes, they come all the time coming with new ideas and, and, and new devices as well to protect the cyberspace. And also, secondary to that, the, the government has decided to put uh, um, uh, what we call the CERT, 
the Cyber Emergency Response Team. I heard so, about that. I read about that. Wow. So the first responders to a cyber attack on critical infrastructures, like electricity, water, banks, hopefully hospitals will be included in the, uh, uh, in the definition of critical um, um, infrastructure as well, it resides in that park. Wow. And you did that? And yeah, so this is something which is really amazing because we start from nothing, just, you know, from, from bare, bare sand over there <laughs> to really build something very, very significant. Perfect. Perfect. Well, it has been a pleasure, Professor Carmi. And um, thank you so much for joining us on the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. All right, that's it. Todaba, the hitrot ve yalabai. Thank you.